the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Chris Williams is engineering today's program. James Blend, while absent, is the producer. Today on the program, we're going to talk with uh, Pastor Carl Vaders. He is the author of Small Church Essentials, Field-Tested Principles for Leading a Healthy Congregation of Under 250. And yes, that last name was Vaders. And if I was not a mature, seasoned, broadcast professional. I would make a joke about Vader, but since I am all of those other things, I'm just going to let that go. I guess I didn't let it go since I brought it up. Anyway, we're also going to talk with uh, Ryan Anderson. Dr. Anderson is the author most recently of When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. Uh, An excellent book in understanding the issue uh, from a variety of perspectives, scientific, moral, and otherwise, and how we can address this issue with compassion and also tell the truth. So he'll be joining us for three segments in the five o'clock o'clock hour. He'll join us right at five o'clock and we'll continue through most of that for that second hour. But first, some of the news that we've been following that are uh, that is developing. The caravan of asylum seeking immigrants has reached the U.S.-Mexico border at San Diego and U.S. immigration officials said the border crossing was closed because it was filled to maximum capacity. Once they come into the country and are evaluated, then they're released and uh, free to stay until their hearing. Unfortunately, and often uh, the hearings, uh, the people don't show up for their hearings and the president has indicated that's his concern. So at least at this point, they're entitled to uh, to being considered for asylum. So that's not the question. The question is how and, and when that's done. Interestingly, I was listening to some conversations earlier among those who do this kind of work. And generally, when there are asylum seekers, they... they uh, for example, on our um, northern border, they remain in the country uh, outside of the U.S. border rather than come into the country. So it's a little bit of a different configuration uh, in uh, in this case on the southern border. We'll continue to keep our eye focused on what happens there. More on that in a few moments. The White House Correspondents Association distances itself from the comedian Michelle Wolf after her controversial comedy routine on Saturday's White House Correspondents' Dinner. The president did not attend. He did send some surrogates. And um, because I felt like I needed to know what happened. I listened to the audio and I wouldn't encourage you to do the same. It was raunchy and inappropriate. I'll just leave it at that. T-Mobile and Sprint agreed to merge in a $26.5 billion deal that, if allowed, would leave control of the U.S. wireless industry in the hands of only three major companies. And embattled Rear Admiral Ronnie Jackson will not return as President Trump's personal physician after he withdrew his nomination to head the Department of Veterans Affairs. Well, as I mentioned, there's been a showdown at the U.S. border. Immigration officials said on Sunday that the San Diego border crossing where hundreds of Central American immigrants intended to apply for asylum was closed due to high capacity. Now, my understanding is that number is uh, is not hundreds now. It's more like 150. But nonetheless, many of the asylum seekers were preparing to wait overnight, which they now have done. Customs and Border Protection uh, said earlier Sunday that the agency reached capacity at the San Diego port of entry at CBP. Officers uh, uh, to be able to bring additional personal uh, persons rather traveling without appropriate entry documentation into the port of entry for processing. Commissioner
Governor Kevin McLean told Fox News in addition uh, in a statement uh, that immigration immigrants rather may need to wait in Mexico as CBP officers work to process those already within our facility. Despite the announcement, about 50 people walked across the bridge, approached the port facility, but were not immediately accommodated by U.S. officials. And the White House Correspondents Association distanced itself late Sunday from comedian Michelle Wolf, whom they invited to come and be the speaker, amid mounting criticism over a comedy routine at the annual Correspondents' Dinner that some found vulgar and personal. Last night's program was meant to offer a unifying message about our common commitment to a vigorous and free press while honoring civility, great reporting, and scholarship winners, not to divide people. That's a quote from the White House Correspondents Association President, Margaret Talley, in a statement. Unfortunately, she went on to say the entertainer's monologue was not in the spirit of that mission. Meanwhile, the uh, speaker doubled down on her personal attacks on Sarah Sanders during the White House Correspondents' Dinner after several journalists came to the White House press secretary's defense. Several at uh, Saturday night's annual dinner in D.C. sat in silence as Wolf launched her attacks on the president and members of his administration. Her jokes drew laughs and gasps when she took a jab at Sanders, who was at the dinner as a representative of the Trump administration, sitting just feet away from Wolf, the speaker. Uh, She commented on Sanders' appearance, criticized her job performance, and even her southern roots. It was not funny, to say the least. And Republicans hope that four primaries in the coming weeks will yield the kind of top-tier candidates good enough to beat at least a couple vulnerable but seasoned Democratic incumbents and solidify the GOP's Senate majority. But outsider candidates and negative campaigns and two high-value targets, Indiana and West Virginia, threaten to foul the GOP plans. West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin has been a top GOP target since at least November of last year, well, actually 2016, when Republican Donald Trump won the state uh, with 68.7 percent of the vote. Still, the GOP's chances of defeating Manchin are being confounded by primary candidate Don Blankenship, a former coal mining executive released from prison less than a year ago. He's still on probation. While Blankenship's bid is a long shot, he's uh, testing whether a party led by an anti-establishment outsider can rein in its uh, anti-establishment impulses. Meanwhile, in Indiana, the grueling Republican Senate, <clears throat> excuse me, Senate race has been dubbed the nation's nastiest primary. Two sitting congressmen and a former state lawmaker are battling to replace Democratic Senator Joe Donnelly in November. They've tried to appeal to Trump voters by adopting the president's harsh immigration rhetoric and penchant for personal insults. And the candidates have uh, even channeled Trump by assigning derisive nicknames to one another. Lion Todd Rokita, tax hike Mike Braun and Luke Missing Messer. As the bitter campaign slogs on, some Republicans worry the primary winner could emerge so wounded it could risk the party's chances of taking down one of the Senate's most vulnerable Democrats. And finally, on this day in 1975, the Vietnam War came to an end as the South Vietnamese capital of Saigon fell to communist forces. In 1945, on this day, Adolf Hitler committed suicide along with his wife, girlfriend of one day, Eva Braun. Uh, Soviet troops approached his Berlin bunker, and in 1789, George Washington. He takes the oath of office in New York as the first president of the United States. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. Also, later this hour, we'll talk with Pastor Carl Vader. His book, Small Church Essentials, Field-Tested Principles for Leading a Healthy Congregation of Under 250. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Rest. Pastor Carl Vaders will join us uh, in our next segment. He's the author of Small Church Essentials, Field-Tested Principles for Leading a Healthy 
wealthy congregation of under 250. Well, Israeli Prime Minister um, Benjamin Netanyahu claims Iran has been hiding all of the elements of a secret nuclear weapons program. He uh, revealed new dramatic intelligence today, which he claims shows Iran is brazenly lying about its nuclear weapons program and shows the country is not complying with the vaunted nuclear deal it signed in 2015. The information was obtained within the past 10 days. Israeli officials uh, say Netanyahu said the half a ton of files uh, were moved to a highly secret location in Tehran after the deal was signed and contained materials spread over 5,500 pages and 5,500 files in 183 CDs. Uh, These files conclusively prove that Iran is brazenly lying when it says it never had a nuclear weapons program, he said. He also displayed what he said was an exact copy of the original material, which are now in a very safe place and include um, incriminating documents, charts, presentations, blueprints, and photos. The Israeli prime minister shows where Iran may have moved its nuclear weapons files to a location in Tehran after signing the nuclear deal in that presentation with charts and graphs. Speaking during a nationally televised address, the uh, Israeli prime minister said the material is filled with incriminating evidence. He briefed President Trump about the intelligence on Saturday and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo on Sunday. European counterparts were made aware Monday prior to the speech as well. The president has repeatedly expressed a desire to exit the Iran nuclear deal, which was signed during the Obama administration. And though he has yet to end it, a crucial deadline for recertifying the deal is on the horizon, the 12th of May. In a few days time, President Trump will make a decision on what to do with the nuclear deal. The prime minister said, I'm sure he'll do the right thing, the right thing for the United States, the right thing for Israel, the right thing for peace, the peace of the world. Uh, In a question and answer period at the White House Rose Garden with Nigerian President um, Buhari on Monday, the president of the United States said he'll make a decision on or before May the 12th, which is, of course, the deadline. That doesn't mean I won't negotiate a new agreement, the president said, adding that we'll see what happens. Well, Netanyahu's statement also came on the heels of a missile attack in northern Syria that killed nearly 26 pro-government fighters, mostly Iranians, according to a Syria war monitoring group. Israel had no comment on the strike, but there was widespread speculation that Israel was responsible. Tehran has sent thousands of Iran-backed fighters to help President Bashar Assad's forces in Syria in the seven-year civil war. Israel and Iran are arch enemies, and Israel has said repeatedly it would not allow Iran to establish a permanent military presence in Syria. Iran has already accused Israel of carrying out another airstrike there this month that killed seven Iranian military advisors and vowed revenge. The back and forth continues. The decision on the part of the president will have to be made on or before May the 12th. Um, In other news, during a summit meeting on Friday with South Korean President Moon Jae-in at the inter-Korean demilitarized zone, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un also affirmed his willingness to give up his nuclear weapons in exchange for a security guarantee from the United States, according to an account of the meetings released by the Southern uh, Korean officials. Now, what he means by that, what the South Koreans heard and what the United States believes uh, North Korea means by that is still unclear. But in an interview broadcast on Sunday, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said the Trump administration was heading into negotiations with eyes wide open and emphasized irreversible denuclearization as a main target of the upcoming talks. The move by Mr. Kim comes as relations warm between uh, the Koreas ahead of a planned summit between President or Mr. Kim rather and President Donald Trump aimed at persuading the regime to relinquish its nuclear arsenal. Meanwhile, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, he reportedly has um, a message for Palestinian leadership, agreed to come to the negotiations table or shut up and stop complaining, end quote. While the blunt comment from the next in line to the Saudi throne made during a meeting with Jewish 
Jewish organizations in New York in March comes as the Trump administration works to broker a peace deal between Israel and the Palestinians. Of course, they're not interested in talking with the Trump administration vis-a-vis the United States since the um, the United States is going to acknowledge Jerusalem as Israel's capital, moving its embassy there. Well, in a statement, um, the crown prince said, according to a Channel 10 news report, citing Israeli and American sources briefed about the meeting. In the last several decades, the Palestinian leadership has missed one opportunity after the other and rejected all the peace proposals it was given. It is about time the Palestinians take the proposals and agree to come to the negotiations table or shut up and stop complaining. Um, ben Salman's uh, criticism of Palestinian leadership was corroborated by an Israeli foreign ministry cable sent by one of their diplomats in New York. People literally fell off their chairs after the crown prince made the reported remarks, a source told Channel 10. And a House Intelligence Committee report released by congressional Republicans alleged that uh, Mr. Clapper leaked information about the infamous Steele dossier to the media while he was still in office. Well, the former intelligence chief, uh, James Clapper, is facing scrutiny for allegedly providing inconsistency consistent testimony to the House Intelligence Committee regarding his discussions with the media about the anti-Trump dossier. That claim was contained in a report released on Friday by House Intelligence Committee Republicans. Up next, we'll talk with Pastor Carl Vader's Small Church Essentials, field-tested principles for leading a healthy congregation of under 250. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You know, big churches get pretty much all the love. Articles, books, conferences, they mostly feature leaders of large congregations. Yet big churches are a pretty small part of the ecclesial landscape. In fact, more than 90% of churches have fewer than 200 people. That means small churches are playing a pretty big part in what God is doing. Small church essentials, field-tested principles for leading a healthy congregation of under 250, is for leaders and those smaller of, rather, those smaller congregations. My guest, Carl Vaders, he's been a small church pastor for 30 years. He travels extensively to churches and conferences to speak about leading a small church well. He encourages pastors to steward their role well, debunking myths about small churches, while offering principles for leading a dynamic, healthy, small church. Carl Vaders leads Cornerstone Christian Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. He's the author of The Grasshopper Myth, Big Churches, Small Churches, and The Small Thinking That Divides Us, published in 2013. He writes about the value and needs of small churches for Christianity Today, and he's the founder of NewSmallChurch.com, a blog that encourages, connects, and equips innovative small church pastors. He and his wife, Shelley, have three kids and one one son-in-law, rather, and he joins us today to talk about his book, Small Church Essentials, Field-Tested Principles for Leading a Healthy Congregation of Under 250. Thank you so much for joining us. It is an honor to have you with us. It's great to be with you. Now, there's a lot of talk, as uh, I mentioned in the introduction, and you point out in your book, about larger churches and Many of the smaller churches look to them for innovation and how to uh, how to grow their congregations. Let's talk about the basic principle behind your book, Small Church Essentials. Some might take exception, for example, uh, to being referred to as a small church, while in fact most churches are small. Oh, absolutely. Um, small churches generally are considered to be under 200 or 250. Now, if you're pastoring a church of 
250 or so, which is actually a very common number all around the world. Two or 250 can seem pretty big, but under 250, you can still know pretty much everybody, and the pastor can pastor in a pretty much hands-on way, and over that, they really can't. So that's, that's kind of where you draw the line in how we define small churches. And when you define it that way, what we discover is that over 90% of congregations in the world are, in fact, small. Uh, people choose to go to that partially mm-hmm. because it's smaller and because you can get to know everybody, you can be pastored directly by the pastor. And so about half the Christians in the world actually go to smaller congregations. So if we're going to discount small as being valuable, we're really pushing half of the body of Christ aside. And I think we need to bring them fully into the conversation. Oh, absolutely. And it is a breath of fresh air to recognize that the predominance of churches across the country and perhaps around the world are smaller churches and that they are uh, doing most of the, the heavy lifting. Now, here in the United States, at least, um, we are told or or our, our thinking leans toward aspiring to um, grow a smaller church into a gigantic church that most of our lead comes from the larger churches. What do you say uh, to those who might look at a smaller church as something less than um, successful? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's a sensible question, because if a church is healthy and it's following the Great Commission, then logic tells us that, well, if you're leading people to Christ, then your church is going to be bigger year after year. Um, That's the theory, that if you're leading people to Christ, your church will be bigger. But just like any scientist has a theory, they have to test the theory against reality. And when we test the theory against reality, what we discover is there are some churches that get bigger, but there are a lot of churches that are doing the Great Commandment, the Great Commission, and they're equipping the saints, but they don't necessarily get bigger every year. So we have to factor that reality into it and see that there are a whole lot of healthy churches that are small and that don't necessarily get bigger in the population every year. Now, there are some that aren't healthy at all, but that has nothing to do with size because there are big unhealthy churches and small unhealthy churches. My premise is if your church is unhealthy, let's get it healthy. But if it's unhealthy and you just make it bigger, then you're just having a bigger unhealthy church. And that's not good for anybody. Health has got to be the goal. Well, I appreciate you're separating the two. Obviously, we want growth because that means people are coming to faith in Christ. But if, if, as you pointed out, if it's not a healthy church, that's not going to create a healthy follower. Let's describe what a or define what a healthy church is. What do we look for? How do we um, recognize when a church, small or large, is a healthy congregation? I think there are three primary factors. Uh, first of all, the great commandment. Are we loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves? Secondly, the great commission. Uh, are we sharing our faith with others? And then thirdly, there's something that I, I like, I've coined a term called the pastoral prime mandate, and it's just my way of describing Paul's instructions in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. It's the only place in the New Testament where the word pastor is used to describe a title in the church. It's really interesting because as pastor-centric as our churches are, you'd think the word yeah. pastor would be all over the place mm-hmm. in the New Testament, but it's just in that one spot. And in that one spot, we have to share it with four other types of leaders, evangelists and teachers and, and so on. And we are given one instruction in that passage, and that is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. So I think if we're doing those three things, if we are loving God and each other, if we are sharing our faith, and if the leaders of the church are equipping the people in the church to do ministry rather than doing all the ministry for them, you have a healthy church. You make the point early in the book that for most uh, trained church leaders, they're not really told 
told early on that they're very likely to um, pastor a small church, then at some some point in every pastor's uh, life, they will, in fact, uh, shepherd a smaller congregation. How do you help pastors shift their thinking from focusing on the church size to focusing on the health of the church? Yeah, I had somebody ask me last week, um, I'm trying to shift, and I think I've shifted from numerically-based to health-based, but how do I know for sure when we launch an idea or we start a new ministry that my heart is straight on that, that I'm looking at it for health and not just for numbers? And actually, before I even do that, I've I've got no problem with churches getting bigger, Mm -hmm. and I love big churches too. I just Mm -hmm. want everybody in this. So what I stated to him was, ask yourself about the ministry. If you knew that doing this ministry would not put more people in front of you on a Sunday morning, would you still do that ministry? Does it still have value? If so, then the ministry is being done for health. If not, then you've got a numbers motivation to it, which may not be wrong, but we simply need to be aware of our motivations. Well, I appreciate your mentioning that this book that we're talking about today, Small Church Essentials, is not a critique on the larger church, but rather it's an affirmation of the small church and a guide so that those who are pastoring small churches, which is 90% of, uh, of pastors across the country, uh, that they do it well. Exactly. The, there are, you know, 90% of pastors are pastoring small churches and half the body of Christ is in small churches. And yet the resources for small churches are really, really slim. There's a few good resources out there, but they're not nearly as many as the resources are for helping you get big or helping you pastor once you're big. So it's, it's really interesting to me that we've got this massive part of the body of Christ that has not been, I don't think, valued as much as it should be, and certainly is not resourced nearly as much as it ought to be. Now, you've been teaching small church essentials to um, hundreds for years. Can you describe your journey to discovering and defining these principles through what you refer to in the book as your new lens? Yeah, the, that began because, well, I live in Orange County, California, just eight miles south of Disneyland, and it's, it's, a, it's the land of the giants as far as churches are concerned. Uh, not a lot of people in California go to church, but when we we go, we tend to go really big. Uh, so I, you know, I, I, drive, I can drive half an hour from my front door and go by Saddleback Church, the original Calvary Chapel, the original Vineyard, Crystal Cathedral, uh, you know, really, really big, well-known churches. And um, I've been pastoring there for 25 years, and our church has stayed relatively small. So a few years ago, I got really frustrated with, boy, if I can't grow a big church here, I can't do it anywhere. And I began to wonder, you know, am I failing at this? Am I just bad at this? Are we, are we doing something wrong? And through a long season of soul searching, I realized, you know, if I took the numbers out of the mix, I would look at our church and go, it's really healthy. We are doing the Great Commandment. We are doing the Great Commission. And we are equipping people and sending them out into ministry. In fact, that's one of the reasons our church remains kind of small is we send a lot of people away to do ministry Mm -hmm. a lot of the time. So I had to walk through that whole season myself of wondering, do I have any value because my church is staying small? And then finally, I thought, well, we are small. So what does a healthy small church look like. And I looked around and it was really hard to find principles. I've told people the only reason I wrote my books is because nobody else had written for me. If I'd found them already, I wouldn't have had to write them. And uh, so th- there are really not a lot of resources. So that was my, I, I had that frustration. I you know, almost melted down and burned out and left the ministry simply because of the numbers. But once I took the numbers out of the equation and looked at the church, I thought, this is really a healthy church. We're doing really important things for the kingdom of God. And now we need to continue continue to move forward with that. And if the Lord brings numerical growth, we will be grateful for it and we will adapt to that new reality. But in the meantime, we decided we're going to be a healthy church at whatever size we are. But it it took a while to get there and a lot of frustration. One of the things that you write about is the 
fact that the, the book is important for large church pastors as well. How will the larger church pastors benefit and what do they need to consider when they look to their brethren who are shepherding smaller congregations? The, the, the large church pastors and almost everyone that I've ever met, in fact, all the ones that I've met have been extraordinarily good and very, very generous people. But it's really easy to forget what it's like to struggle as a small church. So I think the first thing that small church pastors would like to hear from our big church brothers and sisters in Christ is that they appreciate the work that we do. Uh, Secondly, if they can understand that the principles that work in big churches don't necessarily work in small churches. A church of 500 and a church of 5,000 have more in common than a church of 500 and a church of 100 do. Mm -hmm. Once you get below the 500 number or so, the principles and strategies and the way you do ministry really changes. So the expectation that somehow anybody, if they're in a small church and they take the principles that are working in a megachurch, if we just apply them properly, they would work. It simply doesn't work out that way because the relationship dynamics and the leadership principles when you get under 250 or so really change. So just an understanding that we can't just apply the same principles and have them work, it, it doesn't work that way in a smaller church. So an understanding of that would be really helpful. We're talking with Carl Vaders. He is the author of uh, the book, Small Church Essentials, Field-Tested Principles for Leading a Healthy Congregation of Under 250. The book is published by Moody. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing a conversation with Pastor Carl Vaders. He is the author of Small Church Essentials, Field-Tested Principles for Leading a Healthy Church Congregation of Under 250. He's also the founder of NewSmallChurch.com. It's a ministry that encourages, connects, and equips innovative small church pastors, and there are many, many, many of them. We're grateful for the, uh, for the resource. Um, now, what response do you often receive uh, to the phrase small church? I mentioned in the uh, first segment of our conversation that some pastors, some churches might take exception to that, uh, that label, small church. What kind of response have you received? Yeah, sometimes I'll get that pushback, like I just don't want to call it small but I and I even took some time to really consider when I started doing this ministry. Do I want to use this, the term small? And I, I came up with other ideas. Do we call it micro church or nano church or normal sized church or all hmm. kinds of other things? And I, I stick with small church for two reasons. One, because it's self-explanatory. If I use any other term, I have to explain what it means. There's still some definition of small as far as where do you draw the line numerically. But when we, we say small church, people generally know what you mean. But the main reason is because. If it's hard to tell people that it's not a problem to be small if you're afraid of using the term. Mm. So I wanted to reclaim the term. Yeah, we're small and that's not a problem and we're okay with using that word. Small is not does not mean less than small sim, uh, does not mean less than qualitatively anyway. It simply means fewer than quantitatively, and it's an okay phrase to use. It is in no way diminishing the value of the church to say it's small. Your book is divided into four parts. So the second part is titled "Thinking Like a Great Small Church," and you make the point that we need to a broader definition of church growth, um, which oftentimes divides the small from the larger church congregations. What's a broader definition of church growth? that can be embraced by the small church? The, the only, I believe that the only church growth that really matters to Jesus is when Christians are increasing as a percentage of the general population. So if you've got a region where a lot of bigger churches are springing up, but it's just Christians moving into larger and larger groups, 
that's not really church growth. That, that certainly is not kingdom growth. But if we're going to have uh, an understanding of church growth that says, in this region, in our denomination, in this nation, we want to see more people actually coming to Christ, what we'll discover is one of the primary tools to help reach more people for Christ is actually the planting of churches. And when churches are planted, they tend to be small. So the multiplication of small churches is actually one of the strongest forms of church growth. But unfortunately, most people, when they hear church growth, the only thing they think of is an individual congregation getting larger in their weekend attendance. But I think we need to broaden that definition to include uh, launching of other churches and taking a look around and going, is the church growing in this city, in Mm -hmm. this county, in this state, or in this nation? I think that's the way we need to be redefining church growth. In the third part of your book titled Bringing New Life to an Existing Small Church, you tackle what is a real challenge in some of the smaller congregations, tackling uh, chronic small church issues and changing for the better. Give us an example of some of these small church issues, which those of us who attend smaller church may be well aware of, and how we can change for the better in, in dealing with those, because the numbers are smaller, and as you mentioned earlier, everybody knows everybody, and perhaps everybody's stuff. Sure. In the, well, in the the big church, uh, one of the criticisms that's sometimes made of the big church, and I think unfairly so, is, well, people just go there because they want to disappear. And after having said that, I'm going to say to a certain degree that's true, because if you want to sit passively in a church, you're more likely going to go to a large church because you can disappear. But that's why pastors of healthy large churches are always pushing for small groups, they're always pushing for Mm -hmm. ministry teams, they're always pushing for people to be more engaged, because they understand that one of the biggest challenges once the church gets bigger is to ignite people out of their passivity. So they work very hard at that. Small churches have exactly the opposite problem. If big churches are fighting passivity, small churches are fighting the passive-aggressive, or what we might call the control freak. Because if you want to be passive, you're going to go to a big church. But if you are a control freak, you're going to go to a small church because you're going to have more control there. If you're a control freak, you're not going to walk into a church of two or 3,000. You're not going to be able to get headway and be able to have the kind of influence you want to have. But if you want control, you're likely to go to a smaller church church. So healthy small churches need to understand that that is part of the dynamic that error. And sometimes the person who's giving you the biggest problem as a control freak may not even realize that they're doing that. If they've been in the church for some time, they may have seen some bad history and they may have seen pe- people make bad decisions. And so they are wanting to step up to make sure it doesn't happen again as it come, and it comes across as controlling. So that's one of the biggest challenges for small churches is to make sure that we don't let control freaks take over. And sometimes pastors let me say this lovingly, pastor to pastor, sometimes the control freak is looking at you in the mirror. Mm. So we need to be careful about that, too. Mm. And of course, you address that in greater detail in the book, Small Church Essentials. You also have a chapter in that same section of the book titled, A New Way to See Small Church Vision Casting. Uh, Sometimes there's such a preoccupation with just managing uh, that vision casting can be lost in the mix. What what are some new ways for the small church to uh, look forward and cast vision? vision for the future. In a big church, you have to have a very strong vision statement, and it has to be repeated many, many, many times. Um, But that is really more so in big churches than small. However, that's not typically what we're told. We're just told every church needs a strong vision statement. The reason a big church needs a strong vision statement is because the pastor or a pastoral staff member may not be able to attend 90 to 90 percent of the events that the church has. There's just too much going on. So the vision or mission statement holds everybody on the same task and gives them an understanding of what they're there for. But the smaller the church is, the less we need a vision statement because 
if in a small church, most of the time, everybody is at every event. And so what we do is really decided upon by the relationships we have more than by a big sweeping mission statement. The church I'm at right now went through five pastors in the 10 years before I came. Mm. And each one of them had a big mission that they made, that they stated. And by the time I got there, they were tired of hearing mission statements because when you have five and 10 years and then the pastor leaves 18 months later, you just don't want that anymore. So what I said was, well, let's get to know each other and let's work together together to understand what God wants us to do. If after we figure that out, we have a way of stating it, then let's state it. But it really develops from, and it's really held together more by relationships, the smaller the church is. Mm. The last segment of your book, uh, the last part is Becoming a Great Small Church. Can you share a story of applying these small church essentials in the church that you pastor? Yeah, absolutely. There's been so many of them over the years, but one of them that comes really um, close to mind is we were trying to figure out how to do the third leg of that chair, discipling people and equipping people to become more effective church members and more effective ministers. In our congregation for years, what I did was uh, we tried to do all of that being curriculum-based. And so we'd have a class and people would go through it. And they were good classes. But, well, the first example of that for me was, you know, back in the day, 15, 20 years ago, when we did Rick Warren's now infamous, you know, Baseball Diamond, 101 and 201, 301, 401. And the idea was you take people through it the first year, and then the second year you go through it again with a new group of people. But we did it the first year, and it was great. And then when we started it at 101 the second year, nobody signed up. And I realized it was because everybody in the church <laughs> did it last year, and mm-hmm. they don't need to do it again. <laughs> so one of the things we realized was in a small church, it's really less about the curriculum and more about the mentoring relationship. And so we've done that more. We've begun to develop mentoring relationships, usually not one-on-one, but usually in smaller groups. And so we now more than working on a curriculum, we train people up to be able to mentor other believers. And when we do that, what we discover is that's actually one of the main reasons people choose to come to a small church, because they want to have a relationship with people that will help them move forward in their spiritual journey, become better worshipers, become better ministers, and become better at fellowship with other believers as well. So we still have curriculum, because curriculum is helpful to keep you between the theological guardrails and to give you certain you know, markers to hit time-wise so you don't just run on forever with it. But in, in the way we do ministry now, it is based on mentoring with curriculum to support that rather than simply, let's just finish this class. So that's one of the things I learned early on. The smaller yeah. the church is, the more you want to depend on relationships for your mentoring your discipleship. Well, the book is titled Small Church Essentials, Field-Tested Principles for Leading a Healthy Congregation of Under 250. And certainly there's much more in the book than our time would permit us uh, to discuss. But it's a great resource, very practical uh, for pastors and church leaders. I want to also remind our listeners that you have the website, newsmallchurch.com, to help connect small church uh, leaders and pastors and uh, to help encourage them in the work that God has called them to. Pastor Vaders, thank you so much for talking with us today. Great to be with you, Georgie. Really appreciate it. We're going to take a quick break. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we return, Ryan Anderson, when Harry became Sally, responding to the transgender moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, America is in the midst of what's being called a transgender moment. It wasn't that long ago when most Americans hadn't even heard of transgender identity, but within the space of a year, it's become a cause celebre, claiming the mantle of civil rights. But can a boy truly be trapped in a girl's body? And can modern medicine really reassign sex? Is sex something assigned in the first place? And what's the loving response to a friend or a child experiencing a gender identity conflict? 
conflict. What should our laws say on these very important issues? When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment, is the new book by Ryan Anderson, and it provides thoughtful answers to all of these questions and others. He draws on the best insights from biology, psychology, and philosophy, and he offers a balanced approach to the policy issues, a nuanced vision of human embodiment, and a sober and honest survey of the human costs of getting human nature wrong. He reveals a grim contrast between the media's sunny depiction and the often sad realities of gender identity struggles, and he introduces readers to people who tried to transition but found themselves no better off. Especially troubling is the suffering felt by adults who were encouraged to transition as children but later came to regret it. Well, Ryan Anderson is the William E. Simon Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He is the author of Truth Overruled, The Future of Marriage and Religious Freedom, and co-author of What is Marriage? Man and Woman, a defense and debating, uh, a defense rather, and debating religious liberty and discrimination. He's made appearances on all the major uh, television and network um, stations. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. And his research has been cited by two U.S. Supreme Court justices in two separate Supreme Court cases. He received his bachelor's degree from Princeton University, his doctoral degree from the University of Notre Dame, and he joins us to talk about his latest book, When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. Ryan Anderson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Happy to be with you. This is such an important and timely book because there are lots of questions about what can and can't be done, what should and shouldn't be done, and where we stand as a culture today in which we are all encouraged to embrace the notion of uh, transgender as a a perfectly acceptable uh, option for people with gender confusion, which used to be gender dysphoria. What motivated you to to take on this topic at this time? Well, I mean, so it's twofold. Uh, One was that we just kept getting requests at the Heritage Foundation, which is where I work, um, about the policy. You know, what should it do when it comes to bathroom? What should be the military policy? What should be health care policy? And as I started looking into these policy questions, I saw that the underlying human reality is actually much more important. Uh, And it was when I started seeing some uh, YouTube videos of people who had transitioned and then five or 10 or 15 years detransitioned. And they spoke movingly about the suffering that they had um, through that process. That's really what convinced me that I had to take the time to do the deep dive, the research on what's true and what's not true when it comes to the difficult question about gender identity, gender religion, a transgender identity, uh, and then write a book that would be accessible to ordinary people. Mm -hmm. Because there are lots of legitimate questions and confusion on this subject. Well, let's begin with the more obvious question, and that is whether or not a boy, or a girl for that matter, can be trapped in the opposite sex's body. Can a boy be trapped in a girl's body? And what does that mean? Yeah, so, I mean, so, so a great follow-up question. I mean, the short answer is no. Um, you can't be trapped in the wrong body um, because the sex of an individual is a bodily reality. Um, so it's not even clear what it would mean to be trapped in the wrong body. Who is trapped in the wrong body? We are our body. That is part of the reality of who we are. Uh, and so there's not something uh, that exists independent of the body that can be trapped in the, quote, wrong body. But what can happen is people are uncomfortable in their body. Right? So people can have an alienation from their body. And then what good therapy would like is it tries to help people feel comfortable in their own bodies. It tries to um, help people feel comfortable in their own body. What I'm reading and what I'm hearing said is that uh, sex and gender are two very different things. They acknowledge the biology that one is male or female, according to one's genitalia, but that gender is something much broader. It has more to do with society. And so while we may reject our biological sex, we can choose our gender, which has a, a very broad range. What are your thoughts about that kind of an explanation that acknowledges the, the bio- biological sex, but rejects uh, the fact that it means anything to how one chooses to present? Well, I mean, if, if that's the case, uh, and I think a version of that probably is the case, then why do you have to radically transform somebody? Uh, it's perfectly fine to say that my biological 
biology is a man, but I enjoy playing with dolls, or I enjoy ballet, or I enjoy any of the socially uh, constructed, stereotypically feminine activity, that's perfectly fine. It doesn't mean that you're a girl trapped in a boy's body. It doesn't mean we should give you puberty blocking drugs. It doesn't mean we should give you estrogen. It doesn't mean we should give you surgery. Um, what this means is that we need to have a um, larger understanding of what are acceptable interests and, um, and activities for boys and girls, men and women. And boys who play with dolls and girls they were are trapped in the wrong bodies. Uh, they're not transgender. Uh, we just need to have a, a, a larger understanding of the reality that boys and girls are different. But they're still boys and they're still girls. Another large question is whether or not modern medicine can reassign sex. We're hearing more and more of sex reassignment surgery at younger and younger ages. And we'll, we'll talk maybe in a moment about the use of hormones uh, in, in children and what we know and what we don't know about the long-term impact. But what about the, the notion that changing one's physical appearance can essentially reassign one's sex? Well, no. Uh, sex change uh, is impossible. Uh, precisely because that isn't defined at birth. Uh, contrary to what the actors say, you'll, you'll hear activists now say that someone that is merely assigned at birth. Um, and they're saying that because then they can say, and modern medicine will reassign that. But they're wrong about both of those things. That isn't assigned at birth. Sex is a bodily reality um, that starts forming action based upon the chromosomes that we inherit from our mother and our father. That then lead in utero to the formation of certain sex organs, the production of certain hormones, the development of certain sexual reproductive systems, the development of certain external genitalia. All of these things are taking place well before birth. And so sex isn't assigned at birth. It's recognized on an ultrasound screen around 20 weeks. So later in life, you can't undo all that. You can't change the chromosomal uh, uh, inheritance of an individual. You can't give them a new reproductive system. What can do, however, is you can amputate certain body parts. You can remove certain body parts. And then you can try to start to create something that resembles uh, the opposite of a body part. You can masculinize a woman's body, a feminine, a man's body, but that doesn't reassign their sex. Now, in addition to surger- surgical modifications, it's also possible to take hormones that assist in that um, apparent uh, change. And we're hearing increasingly that young children who have sex um, confusion are being prescribed hormones. What do we know about the impact that that can and will have in the lives of young people who take these kinds of drugs over long periods of time? Yeah, this is this is really, really troubling. Um, Very. And there's a, there's a chapter in the book that you're devoted to gender dysphoria in children. And what the activists are proposing, and then what historically uh, was good medicine. So let me start with what the activists are proposing. Uh, they're saying that a child as young as years old who identifies as the opposite at birth undergo a social transition, a new name, a new wardrobe, a new pronoun. Then as that child, the child is placed on puberty-blocking drugs to prevent the child from going puberty in the, quote, wrong body. Then at age 14, the child should be given the opposite sex hormone to try to mimic the puberty of the opposite. So you would give testosterone to a high school girl, estrogen to a high school boy to try to masculinize or feminize their bodies. And then at age 18, that's when the reassignment surgery is put. Your question was, what do we know? Uh, we don't know very much. There's not a single long-term study on the long-term consequences of indefinitely blocking puberty in a child. They're conducting an experiment on children, telling their parents that this is all well under the method and that this will uh, save your child. Uh, they have no idea what it is for a human being not to go through all the coordinated developmental changes that take place at puberty. What does that mean 10, 20, 30 years from now? Simply as a physical matter, uh, then there's also serious that the social transition, the puberty blockers, the opposite of sex hormone, that that could actually be reinforcing um, the transgender identity. Uh, rather than helping someone grow out of it, it might actually be reinforcing it. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Ryan Anderson. Dr. Anderson is the author of When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. We'll be back. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we're continuing our conversation with 
with uh, Dr. Ryan T. Anderson. He is the author of When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. And in the book, he draws on the best insights from biology, psychology, and philosophy, and offers some balanced approach to the policy issues, the nuanced vision of human embodiment, and a sober and honest survey of the human cost of getting human nature wrong, which we certainly are on the verge of doing. You mentioned uh, earlier, and I think this applies to to children uh, as well, but you have a chapter titled Detransitioners uh, Who Tell Their Story. This is not something you hear much out on the square. It's not in the popular media that there are people who regret having made decisions to mutilate their bodies and take drugs for long periods of time. What do they tell us about the impact that this kind of physical, um, mental transition has on them and uh, what ultimately leads to some deciding this was not in their best interest? Yeah, these stories are heartbreaking um, because these are individuals who were told by the gender expert, by the counselors uh, at the gender clinic, by the uh, doctors, by the psychiatrist, that they were actually in the wrong body and that they would find happiness and wholeness by transiting. And that's not what happened. Uh, So many of them report that they were they don't think uh, that they were mature enough to be making life-altering decisions. Many of them report that the uh, medical professionals, the mental health professionals, never really discussed them, uh, the possible causes for their gender dysphoria. You know, were there underlying causes of depression, abuse, anxiety, uh, various experiences, bullying, family trauma, anything like that that might have been causing this? Um, the therapists didn't discuss that, and they didn't ever mention alternative therapy. Um, they report that the experts were telling that this was their only option. And then 5, 10, 15 years later, uh, they're no happier than they were before they transitioned. In fact, they have all of the same struggles before, and that's what then leads them to detransition. Uh, and many of them now regret uh, the permanent damage they've done to their body, um, their lost fertility, um, their 5 o'clock saddle, their women who now have 5 o'clock saddle, women who uh, no longer have breath because they had a double mastectomy, uh, women who are infertile uh, because of years of testosterone that they took, or because they had a hysterectomy. Uh, we want to do whatever we can to prevent more people um, from suffering in this way. Uh, we want to do whatever we can uh, to help people find the help that they need to feel comfortable in their own body. People with gender dysphoria, they're not faking it. Mm-hmm. Imagine feeling so uncomfortable in your own body that you would contemplate uh, transitioning, taking uh, testosterone, having a mastectomy, having a hysterectomy. Uh, these people are clearly uncomfortable in their own body, and we need to work harder uh, at helping them find the help that they need so they can feel comfortable being who they are in their own gift. I want to remind our listeners that it's been several weeks ago now, but we interviewed the uh, uh, Pure Passion that produ- produced the uh, video Transformed, and that's a, a, an opportunity to hear from people who have experienced precisely what you are describing, and they may want to uh, to check that out. Now, you have a chapter titled, What Makes Us Man uh, and Woman? And for those of us who do not struggle in this area, it may seem like an obvious question with an obvious answer, but why do you ask the question, and how should we think about it in view of uh, the, the subject of transgender and this moment? Sure, because what's important here is to recognize that what makes us a man or a woman are bodily realities, not identities about how we feel. Uh, and if you notice, so many of the gender identity claims are largely based on stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that if you're a little boy who enjoys Barbie and the color pink and you don't enjoy football and you're not kind of a bully, then that means you're a girl trapped in a boy's body. Um, you look at how these things are frequently discussed. Um, once you get away from objective, bodily, biological reality, all people have left are various stereotypes, uh, which is why it's not surprising to many people that when Bruce Jenner um, announced that he was now Caitlyn Jenner, that cover photo in Vanity Fair was a very stereotypical image of what a cover model is supposed to look like. But being a woman is more than just cleavage and lipstick and nail polish and high heels and all those kind of external kind of reality. And so what makes us a man and a woman, it's going to start with our chromosomes. It's going to continue with the hormones that our body produces. And they produce those hormones because we have certain internal reproductive organs. We have certain external 
internal genitalia. We have certain secondary characteristics. These are all bodily realities, and they don't necessarily say anything about how a boy or a man ought to behave or how a girl or a woman ought to behave. There's a certain truth to the fact that gender is constructed, but it's not really a social construct. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was reading an article earlier today, and the headline said something like, don't call me baby, call me baby. And the idea was to reserve uh, labeling a child male or female, boy or girl, choosing a gender at some future point. And so they, be would be would replace baby. Is that where we're headed, in which we simply jettison the notion of male and female in favor of uh, allowing Harry and Sally to choose at some point later in life what they uh, what they ultimately want to become? That's that's what some people want us to do, and we have to avoid that mistake uh, because there are two different mistakes we can make. We can you know overemphasize in one or the other direction, and the one direction is androgynous, right? that's a they be, where you simply deny that there are boys and girls, men and women, and you deny that there are different between boys and girls and men and women. Uh, so you embrace the androgynous. But the other mistake, um, and you know, some communities in the United States make this mistake, is that they overemphasize the differences. They have rigid um, stereotypes. Uh, frequently, they have this in a hierarchical relationship, so that boys are better than girls, smarter than girls, men are better than um, We want to avoid both of them. Uh, we don't want to exaggerate the differences between men and women. We don't want to deny that there are differences between men and women. What we want to do is we want to say men and women are equal in their dignity, but they're not the same. And many people mistake this either denying the equal and dignity part or pretending that they are the same. Uh, we need to get this right. Let me ask you about um, public policy, because I think a lot of people feel very pressed about the idea that they're being uh, pressed into a particular view on the subject without the luxury of having the freedom to talk about what direction we ought to go. We know in California, for example, it's quite possible in the near future, any discussion like this and suggesting that someone who has a gender confusion uh, should uh, have any place to go to talk about it should be permitted to do so. Yeah, this is this is this California proposed bill is really outrageous. It would make it a. Uh, 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 consumer fraud, part of their consumer fraud statute, uh, for any professional to help a boy who feels uncomfortable being a boy identify as a boy, to help a woman who doesn't feel comfortable being a woman, to help her feel comfortable, this would be unlawful. Uh, this is an overreach of government regulation, but it's simply outrageous that we would say it's legal for a doctor to give a teenage boy puberty-blocking drug and estrogen and then one day surgery to transform that boy into a girl, but it's not legal for that doctor to simply talk with the boy to discover what it is about being a boy that he finds uncomfortable, what it is about being a girl that he finds attractive, and to help him reunite with his body to see that he can be comfortable being a boy, that he need not have the anxiety that he has, that whatever expectation he thinks is being placed upon him as a boy that he can't live up to, he can meet, or he can get rid of the expectation, that he doesn't have to transform his body to be happy. People need to be free to seek out that sort of help, and professionals need to be free to deliver that sort of help. Now, I need to take a break, and I'm putting you on the spot. When I come back from the break, do you have another couple minutes? Because I want to ask you uh, how we can lovingly respond to a friend or a child experiencing uh, this conflict. Sure. Yep. Okay, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Again, we're talking with uh, Dr. Ryan T. Anderson, his latest book, When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we're talking with uh, Dr. Ryan T. Anderson. His latest book is When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender moment. I appreciate your uh, agreeing to stay with us for a few more minutes because I did want to ask you how in the context of a very volatile conversation or the absence of conversation on this subject, what is the loving response uh, for, to a, a friend or a child experiencing a gender identity conflict? Sure, this is so important. It first is to stay in long-term relationship with this individual. Now, this person needs to know that you love them, that you care for them, that you're not rejecting them. Um, but it's also to help them know um, that trying to live as if the opposite act is isn't going to bring them 
the wholeness and the happiness that they're looking for. Um, and that instead, what they should be doing is trying to uh, receive assistance in identifying what the underlying cause of their discomfort is, and then steps they can take to rectify that. Um, and so let me, let me just give you one example, since I know we're short on time. Um, it's an example that comes from uh, chapter six in, in my book, and uh, it's from the clinical literature, and it involves a young boy uh, who was identifying as a girl. His parent, um, responding in a loving and compassionate way, took him to see a therapist. And the therapist had to ask him a question. What is it about being a boy that you find uncomfortable? What is it about being a boy that causes you distress? What is it about being a girl that you find attractive, that you find appealing? And the boy revealed to the therapist that the anxiety, the distress was because he was being bullied by the other boys in school. He was being picked on. They were calling him a sissy and a wuss. Um, to cope with that bullying, he had formed closer friendship with girls in his class. His interests were now stereotypically feminine. And so he now thought that he must actually be a girl trapped in a boy's body. So the therapist told the parent to do three things to help their son. First, remove your son from this terrible, toxic environment where he's being bullied. The bullying is one of the underlying causes of the gender dysphoria. Mm-hmm. A second, keep bringing him to me so that we can have these conversations. We need to talk to the son so he can know that boys be sensitive. Boys can be sweet. Boys don't have to be jerks. That right now he has a very narrow understanding of what it means to be a boy. And because he doesn't fit into that narrow understanding, he thinks he's not a boy. And so we have to enlarge his understanding. We have to mature his understanding. And then the third thing they recommended was it's not just enough to talk to him about these things. He needs to experience them. So they, uh, the therapist recommended that they find their son a peer group of boys like him. Help him make friends with boys who have his interests, his disposition, his temperament, so he could be firsthand that he's a real boy, that there are other boys out there just like him. Mm-hmm. When the family did that, uh, less than a year later, their son was identifying as a boy. He was spared the puberty-blocking drug, the estrogen, potentially surgery. Uh, he was able to get the evidence he needed to feel comfortable being a boy. And that's the outcome that we're going to want to see happen uh, whenever possible. I know one of the concerns of some of the new school policies is how they might affect children who are being or will be indoctrinated into believing that they really are trapped in the wrong body. And if there is a culture uh, developed around this this notion where it's not only accepted, but in some ways could be understood as encouraged, what impact that's going to have on young people as well? That's a very valid concern because the goal is that um, all of us, uh, adults and children, we interpret our own thoughts and our feelings and our experiences according to certain um, background assumptions, background beliefs. Um, and if your background assumption is that sex is merely assigned at birth and that modern medicine can reassign it, then if you go through a age where you feel uncomfortable in your body, you might interpret that discomfort as a sign that you're actually the opposite, that you're trapped in the wrong body. Rather than making sense of your feelings as, I feel uncomfortable in my body, I should seek out help to feel comfortable again, you might make sense of it as, I'm actually a girl trapped in a boy's body and I should seek out uh, transition help. Right? So the, the, these background assumptions, these core beliefs, they really impact how all of us that of our own lives, our own experiences. And this is particularly true for school children. I sometimes am very concerned about uh, people who transition and they're celebrated for having done so. If there is at some point in the future any regret, there may be a reluctance to admit it because so much attention and fawning is is, um, is given to those who are celebrated for having made that decision. I, I wonder if, uh, if there are more people who would have preferred not to have taken that transition but are now loath to admit it. In the book, you, you show how the law is being used to coerce and penalize those who believe the truth about human nature and how Americans can start to push back with, uh, with principle and prudence, with compassion and grace. That's the challenge in this very volatile environment. Can you give us a, a, a brief insight? Sure. I mean, let, let me give you just one example. Uh, take the, the, the high school uh, bathroom debate. I can understand why a boy who identifies as a girl doesn't want to be forced into the boy's bathroom and locker room. He's going to feel uncomfortable being forced into the boy's bathroom and locker room 
if he no longer identifies. But can he and the LGBT activists understand why the girls at the school will feel uncomfortable if he's allowed in the girls' bathroom and lock him? So the answer here is not to either force him into the boys' bathroom or allow him into the girls' facility. It's to create an accommodation. And we do this frequently in American law, where the law requires a reasonable accommodation. And so one school in Virginia, they needed three different single occupancy uh, restrooms, one on each floor of the high school, so that they, they had a student who was transitioning, so that that student and any other student who desired additional privacy would have a single occupancy facility on each floor of the school. And the parents sued anyway. And the LGBT activists used this, and it went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And before the Supreme Court could rule on the case, the Trump administration rescinded the Obama bathroom policy, because it was the Obama bathroom mandate that was the law that the family, or was the was the guidance, it wasn't even a law, it was merely guidance that the family that was suing the school district was using to say the school district was violating their transgender child rights. Um, we don't need to be extremists like this. Mm-hmm. Um, you shouldn't be suing your local school district to allow you as a girl's bathroom and locker room when you're biologically a boy, um, but we should try to accommodate you if we can. And what this school in Virginia did was eminently reasonable by creating three single occupancy facilities for anyone who desires that additional privacy. Yeah, it seems altogether reasonable. Well, I think one of the places to start is by reading When Harry Became Sally, responding to the transgender moment so that we're better informed on the issue and we can talk intelligently about it. And I so appreciate uh, the work that you have done in making this available. And I would highly recommend to our listeners today that you pick up a copy, you read it and you pass it on because we do need to be well versed on the subject and have a clear understanding and know how to move forward with uh, with compassion and uh, and some knowledge on uh, what what the right thing to do might be. Ryan Anderson, thank you so much for talking with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Again, uh, Dr. Anderson is the author of When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. The book, rather, is published by Encounter and is currently available in uh, in bookstores. Very well done and gives you a very clear understanding of the, uh, the contours of the issue and some of the answers to difficult questions. And there are reasonable answers uh, to help those who struggle with uh, gender dysphoria. I, I also think about in the state of California where a conversation like this, where a book like this, will not be allowed if the law succeeds. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, you may not have experienced them, but there were three earthquakes off the Oregon coast in four days. Uh, 4.0 earthquake was recorded at about 7.20 p.m. Sunday evening, 122 miles off the coast of Bandon. That quake follows two others in four days along the Oregon coast. On Saturday, there was a 2.3 magnitude quake about 14 miles west of Newport. And on Thursday, there was a 3.8 quake about 67 miles west of Tillamook. Now, first of all, it's fascinating to me that they can record earthquakes that far out at sea. But nonetheless, it's also a reminder to have that preparedness kit ready. You have water, canned goods, the stuff you need. You know where your prescriptions and all of that stuff is in the event of an earthquake that would disrupt uh, service. Could you manage for a few days? They tell us it would take, it could possibly take, depending on what happened, several days before things would be back up and running. So we need to be prepared to manage our own affairs, at least for a short period of time. So make sure you've got that in place. Also, they're warning us to get ready for the most expensive driving season in years. A little bit more pain at the pump this summer. Crude oil prices are at the highest level in more than three years. They're expected to climb even higher, pushing up gasoline prices along the way. The U.S. daily national average for regular gasoline is about $2.81 per gallon and always uh, calculate upwards for the uh, West Coast because it costs more to get the gas here. That's up from $2.39 per gallon a year ago, according to the Oil Price Information Service. And across the U.S., 13% of gas stations
stations are charging $3 per gallon or more, according to AAA last week. This will be the most expensive driving season since 2014, says the global head of energy analysis for Oil Price Information Service. The price of U.S. crude oil has been on mostly a steady incline since last June and last week hit $68.64, the highest since December of 2014. Benchmark U.S. crude closed Friday at $68.10. Oil prices near $70. Shouldn't put the brakes on economic growth, however. And while they're uh, boosting costs for some sectors of the economy, the energy sector and related industries have more money to spend on equipment and workers. But higher oil prices are certainly an inconvenience for drivers, especially those with lower incomes. The good news is, if you can consider there is good news, both at the global level and the U.S. level, this is occurring at a time when growth is fairly robust. At least that's what the chief economist from IHS Market has to say. Consumers as a whole will be hurt, mostly because gasoline prices are going up. So uh, make the, uh, calculate that into your summer plans if you're going to um, heading south or heading east for a little, a little bit of fun. Alfie Evans has died. He died over the weekend. His father, we're told, spent 10 minutes trying to revive his son. From Notre Dame, law professor O. Carter Sneed, he writes that little Alfie Evans has recently passed away, but the struggle over his treatment provoked a worldwide conflict over parental rights, how to care properly for the seriously disabled, and the appropriate role of the state in such intimate and vexed matters. What it revealed is that the law of the UK is in desperate need of revision to make room for the profoundly disabled and their loved ones who wish to care for them, despite the judgment of others that such lives of radically radical dependence rather and frailty are not worth living. Well, early Saturday morning, baby Alfie Evans passed away. Uh, it was announced that the 23-month-old uh, by the 23-month-old's mother, Kate James, in a Facebook post, "Our baby boy grew his wings tonight at 2:30 a.m." She posted. Uh, her husband, uh, uh, speaking of Alfie's army official Facebook page. Uh, tagged her husband, Tom Evans. We are heartbroken. Thank everyone for all of your support. Then Mr. Evans posted, my gladiator lay down his shield and gained his wings at 2.30 a.m. Absolutely heartbroken. I love you, my guy. Alder Hay Children's Hospital in Liverpool, where the boy was being well treated, mistreated, not treated, issued a statement as well on their website regarding Alfie's passing, saying, we wish to express our heartfelt sympathy and condolences to Alfie's family at this extremely distressing time. All of us feel deeply for Alfie. Kate, Tom, and his whole family, and our thoughts are with them. This has been a devastating journey for them, and we would ask that their privacy and the privacy of staff at Alder Hay be respected. Alder Hay, backed by the British court system, decided it was in the boy's best interest to die and took him off life support against his parents' will on Monday. But to the surprise of the medical team, Alfie did not die right away from the life support withdrawal. He sustained his own life until Saturday morning with the help from his parents, giving him mouth-to-mouth when the hospital was refusing to give him oxygen, water, and nutrients. Alfie's parents also separately filed requests to take their son to Italy and seek future treatment after he was granted citizenship and assistance from the Italian embassy at the behest of Pope Francis. The court system rejected that request, too. The bureaucrats and medical staff who chose uh, death on their terms for Alfie will go on with their lives. The Evans family, however, will forever deal with the loss and their question of what if. Gary Bauer, writing on the subject, said this, Alfie Evans, the terminally ill 23-month-old would 
uh, who's been the subject of a tragic court battle in England. Shortly after his birth, Alfie was diagnosed with a rare degenerative neurological condition. According to medical experts, Alfie was had become so ill that only hu- the only humane course was to take him off a ventilator and to let him die. Every court has ruled against Alfie and his parents. On Wednesday, the British Court of Appeals approved the withdrawal of nutrition and hydration for Alfie. That's food and water. It also prohibited his parents from seeking care elsewhere. Doctors stopped feeding him, predicting that he would die in a matter of hours. But Alfie did not die. Breathing on his own, doctors have begun feeding him again. Alfie will, uh, Alfie's will to live had inspired millions and prompted a debate in England and around the world over who should ultimately decide whether a person lives or dies. Uh, here are some points to consider. England has a socialized health care system called the National Health Service. This case highlights the dangers of government making the most important health care decisions. What is happening in England is essentially what American conservatives argued would happen under Obamacare's death panels. Government bureaucrats would be the ultimate arbiter of who lives and who dies. Now, in this case, the parents were not seeking additional care in England. That was no longer an option for them, but were denied the opportunity to take their son to a place where he could get treatment. The state simply said, no, we've already made a decision about his future. Another point, some people have argued that Alfie should be left to die because British taxpayers are the ones who have to pay for his care. But Italy had granted him citizenship and a Catholic hospital in Rome had agreed to pay for his care and take all possible steps to save him. UK said no. Another point. There's a profound irony in this case, these cases now. In many Western countries, governments have enshrined the right of women to control the fate of their unborn children, even if it leads to the baby's death. But in this case, the government is doing the opposite, telling Alfie's mother that she has no right to control her baby's fate, his life, so much for women's rights. And finally, the European Union considers the freedom of movement a basic right. That means once migrants from the Middle East cross into Europe, they can move to any country they wish to find work. Meanwhile, parents who wish to seek life-saving care for their child in another EU country are being told no. It's a sad conclusion. What the British authorities are really worried about is not the cost associated with saving Alfie Evans. Again, Italy has agreed to care for the boy, which eliminates the cost issue. Nor are any are they worried, rather, that the infant will die and that they will be accused of being heartless. Their real fear is that Alfie will be taken to Italy and live, which will expose them as the moral, well, monsters in this case and others they actually are. Taking a quick look at uh, the remainder of this week, on Tuesday we're going to talk with Arlene Pelican. She's the author of Parents Rising, Eight Strategies for Raising Kids Who Love God, Respect Authority, and Value What's Right. Is that still possible in the 21st century? We're going to talk about that with her when she joins me tomorrow. We'll also talk with Dennis Fuquay. He's the uh, going to talk with us about Prayer Connection. That's coming up. We'll give you all the details. Wednesday, we'll talk with June Hunt. Her little pamphlet, it's a book, is titled Boundaries, How to Set Them, How to Keep Them. Setting them is one thing. Keeping them, that can be a challenge. She'll join us on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, Leslie Fields will be my guest. The Wonder Years, 40 Women Over 40 on Aging, Faith, Beauty, and Strength. As someone, well, well over 40, I'm looking forward to that conversation. Again, Leslie Fields will join us on um, on Thursday for that. And then on Friday, all things being equal, we will lighten up and focus on the lighter side of the news. So we'll look forward to that. Chris Williams is engineering today's program. Clark Hilton is away on vacation. James Blend is producing, and it's always a pleasure to have you with us. Once again, want to invite you to join us tomorrow as we talk with Arlene Pelican. Her book, Parents Rising, Eight Strategies for Raising Kids Who Love God, Respect Authority, and Value What's Right. And Dennis Fuquay will join us to talk about the Prayer Connection, which is a Mission Connection event coming up shortly. So that's uh, that's our lineup. All right. Want to thank you for listening and uh, joining us. Hope you have a great evening, and we'll be back here, well, let's say tomorrow right around 4. <laughs> Good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guest, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.